Okay, so we're going to continue our, our study in Genesis. Um, just to remind you, though, um, we are going to have our prayer meeting this coming week on Tuesday evening. Uh, that's going to be at 8 o'clock. Um, so please, if you can, come. There's, again, so much to pray for. Uh, and also to remind you that a week Monday... Um, we're going to, sorry, no, sorry, this Monday, sorry, uh, is going to be the ladies' meeting uh, at Bob and Linda's. Um, so please, if you can, if you're a lady, you'd like to go along, 7.45 start for that. Um, also, just to mention that coming up um, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have another sheer praise evening. That'll be on the 24th of June. That's a Saturday evening. Um, so if you can come along, invite friends, family, anybody that would like to come along to that. Um, it's just an hour or so of praise, um, just coming before God and just... Um, just letting God minister to us as we worship him. Uh, we'll be followed time by a time of uh, refreshments and fellowship. And uh, uh, the next men's meeting uh, that we're going to have uh, is actually going to be on the 29th of June. Uh, again, that's going to be at Jeff's house. And uh, we had a, a very blessed time last time. Um, as men, we're just praying for each other for grace. You know, we need God's grace if we're going to live the life that he's called us to live. We can't do it in our own strength. So those are the things that are coming up this morning. We're going to carry on with our study through the book of Genesis. Um, and we've seen already going right from the beginning, the creation, the fall of man. Obviously, we see Satan trying to immediately get in and disrupt things with Cain and Abel. Uh, that leads on, obviously, to the flood uh, with Noah and so on. And then we looked at some detail at the Table of Nations and the Tower of Babel. These were real historical events and have been proven to be so. Um, and all the nations of the earth separated from those nations that were gathered at Babel or Babylon in modern day Iraq as it is now and are separated around the world. You know, and it's really fascinating as we look at the details of these things and the, the fact that these really are historical events. It's not just the Bible and we can put it to one side. You know, the Bible is an incredibly accurate historical document, far more so than any of the other historical documents that we could come across. Now, Last week, uh, we continued looking at uh, the life of, of Abraham and going through, uh, looking first of all at his calling and then his walk and so on. And we came across this really interesting character last time by the name of Melchizedek. Now, I was reading in Bill Cooper's book, um, The Authenticity of Genesis, this week, and it's fascinating because although from a historical perspective there's not a lot written about Melchizedek, who we're told was a king and a priest of Salem, or Jerusalem as we know it, we do find that there is quite a lot written about one of his successors, another king and priest of Jerusalem, somewhere around about 500 or so years later, who wrote extensively to one of the pharaohs of Egypt. And we've got the clay tablets and so on from these records, these political exchanges that went on. Um, there's a number of them. A lot of them are held in a museum in Berlin. Uh, there's some in uh, the British Museum in London and elsewhere. Um, but what's interesting is it seems that this Melchizedek wasn't just an isolated character. And you may recall in Hebrews it speaks of having no beginning and no end. But it also then goes on to tell us that in the days of his flesh. Now that clearly implies that he's no longer alive in his flesh. So that statement isn't saying he's an eternal being, but his priesthood was eternal. Now, it's interesting because that seems to go on for another 500 years after him with subsequent um, kings who were also in that position of priests. 
uh, ruling in Jerusalem. And once again, they were priests of the Most High God, not pagan priests, although Canaan largely was given over to idolatry and paganism at the time. It seems that this particular group of kings and priests had been appointed by God himself. It's very interesting when you start to look at the history behind it. Bill Cooper goes on and shows that it seems that this priesthood had already existed for somewhere in the region of 500 years prior to the time of Melchizedek. Now, that takes us straight after the flood. Now, the conjecture possibly, Shem could have been one of the first of these individuals. We don't know, that's the conjecture. But what we find is that we've got a period of about a thousand years where from Jerusalem we had people appointed by God reigning as kings and priests. I just think that's really quite interesting as this kind of model, particularly with what the Bible says of what's going to happen. Um, so again, I just underline that because it just shows the, the historicity of the things that we read in the Bible. This isn't just some fabricated story. Um, these really are historical events. Now, we're going to go on into chapter 15 this morning. Now, this is one of the pivotal chapters in the Bible. There's a number of really key chapters. I mean, every chapter is important in its own way, of course. But this chapter tells us about the unconditional covenant that God establishes with Abraham and with his descendants. So let's kind of pick up and read the text. We read, after these things, okay, so after all the things that we've been looking at, the battle of the kings and so on that we were looking at in the last week's session, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham. Again, Abraham, his name hasn't yet changed to Abraham. But Abraham, in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I mean, just just pause and think about this just for a second. Because if we don't know God as our shield, then I would suggest that we don't understand our predicament. If you don't know God as a shield, you don't know quite how much of a mess you really are in. And this is something that this week as we were at the pastor's conference really struck me. And a couple of things I'm just going to share with you. But Abraham now knows experientially that God is his protector. Because in the last chapter, we see Abraham with 318 trained servants, an army and so on, go out against five kings and their armies and defeat them. Now, I'm not doubting that Abraham's servants were very good at the role they had at fighting and so on, but this is still somewhat of a miracle. And as Abraham comes back from this battle, he's clearly aware that God really did something quite special, quite incredible in this situation. Abraham knows that God is his shield. Now, do you and I know that God is our shield or not? You see, our adversary, the devil, we're told in First Peter 5 verse 8, seeks whom he may devour. You know, the devil would love to destroy you. He would love to destroy our loved ones. You know, in Luke 22 verse 31, speaking of Peter, Jesus made that statement that the devil would like to have sifted Peter like wheat. And I would suggest that the devil would like to do that with each one of us. Just to destroy us, to grind us down, to make us totally ineffective as Christians. You know, and if you're not a Christian, the devil wants to keep you as far away from the things of God as he possibly can. Because as we're told in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 4 and 5, that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine. 
You see, the devil knows if you just get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, then he's already lost. Because you're not going to go back once you started to realize who Jesus really is. We're also told in Ephesians that we wrestle against spiritual wickedness. And there's principalities and powers and so on that we're listed. But in essence, it's spiritual wickedness. These are spiritual forces at work that we can't see with our natural eyes. And people may just dismiss this and say, oh, well, that's just a belief thing. Well, yeah, look at the world. Look at all the evil that's going on. Where do you attribute that to? No, no, the Bible makes it very clear. There is a spiritual realm. There are fallen angelic beings. There are demons, and they are different. We'll talk about those again maybe some other time. But they exist to cause problems. They exist to mess things up. And, of course, we're wrestling against the flesh. Hebrews tells us in 12, chapter 12, verse 1, that the, the sin that is out there is so easily ensnares us because we're so drawn to those things. You know, God has said to do things in a particular way. But man wants to do it in his way. You know, and again in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, there's a warning there for those who think they stand, lest they should fall. And that's each one of us. We're all in a position where we can so easily stumble and fall. That's the real predicament we're in. And it matters not whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian. The devil is out there to try and destroy lives. However, if you are a believer, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then the prayer or the, the, the words that God gives to Abraham, we can echo. That he is our shield and our exceedingly great reward. Because in Hebrews seven we we're told there that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Have you ever stopped to think about that for a moment? Jesus prays for you. That's incredible. You know, it's sometimes nice we have moments and sometimes in a, a meeting or when we come together, we sometimes pray for each other. But Jesus prays for you. Have you ever asked why? Or let's spin that around. Have you ever asked what would happen if he didn't? You see, we can read something like that and it's kind of like, oh, that's a nice thing. And But Jesus prays for us continually. Why? To stop Satan having his way with us see john 17 one of the the most beautiful prayers that we find in scripture is jesus prays to the father jesus is praying for us and we get an indication of the kind of thing that jesus prays this is one of the the verses verse 11 keep through thine own name those whom thou has given me that they may be one as we are firstly jesus prays that god would keep us What an incredible prayer that Jesus himself would pray that for each one of us. And again, that we may be one as he and the Father were one. That's what God would have of us. It's interesting, isn't it, that prayer draws us closer together. We've seen that recently ourselves. It draws us close to each other. It draws us obviously close to God. And Jesus prays this. In 2 Chronicles 14, verse 11, King Asa makes this plead to God. He's about to be uh, set upon by a two million man Ethiopian army. Another historical event that took place. 
And, and there's no way that Asa's going to be able to defeat this mighty army that's marching against him. So we read in verse 11, And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. Incredible faith of this king, but he is trusting God, realizing that we have to rest on him. He's our shield. He's our defender. In the New Testament, in Philippians 4.13, we're told that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the flip side of that is in John 15.5, which we're told, without me, you can do nothing. So, once again, as we, we look at this verse, God says to Abraham, I am thy shield. And God is your shield if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. And what a great shield to have. What a great place of safety and protection. And to know that Jesus is continually before the Father praying for you. You know, just, just, you think about that for a moment. When you know somebody's doing something for you, it kind of changes the way you act or react to that person. If someone's helping you, you will try and go out of your way to show gratitude. Well, when Jesus himself is praying for you, what response should that engender in us? We're told, the verse goes on, and thy shield, and thy exceedingly great reward. And we're told to lay up our treasure in heaven. And, and it's right and proper that we do so. But if we consider that Jesus is our greatest reward, you know, we were, we were singing that song, and again, I, I love that song we were singing a moment ago, Worth It All. When I finally reach the end, I will say, you Jesus were worth it all. You know, it's, it's that wonderful homecoming when we're finally there in his presence. And the rewards and anything else that we've been laying up, those treasures in heaven and crowns and all those things, they all have the place, all, all good stuff. Just to be with Jesus. Isn't that the greatest reward of all? Because says to Abraham, I'm your reward. We're just saying, I let go of all I have just to have all of you. John, 1 John four eighteen says, perfect love casts out fear. Because, again, God says to Abraham, fear not. Don't be afraid. And the love that God shows toward Abraham is the same love that he shows towards each of us. Well, we, we go on, and I think this is quite interesting, because I'm not suggesting that Abraham doesn't listen to what God has said. But God has said that I am your great reward. And Abraham says, yeah, okay, God, but, but what are you going to give me? It's like, no, 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 Abraham, I am your great reward. He's like, yeah, yeah, but Lord, what are you going to give me? And he carries on. He says, seeing I go childless and the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Now, again, I think Abraham gets it that God is his reward but he's still looking for something else. Because Abraham is looking also here to fulfill the plan and the purposes of God. God has already called him. And back in chapter 12 said that through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I think Abraham is now going to God and saying, well, Lord, how are you going to do this? I don't have a child of my own. And he mentions Eliezer of Damascus. Interesting because 
Another thing that Bill Cooper brings out, and one of the other tablets, clay tablets, has been discovered, speaks of Abraham stopping off in Damascus. And the people of Damascus holding Abraham in very high regard indeed because of the entourage and everything he brings with him, it caused quite a stir. Seemingly, one of the people that decides they want to stay with Abraham is this Eliezer, who Abraham then puts in charge of his house. This is an interesting fact of history that again corroborates exactly what the Bible says. And this is on his way down from Haran, seemingly stopping up Damascus on his way into the land of Canaan. But Abraham's asking a very important question at this point. That's the uh, uh, document I just referred to um, by Nicholas of Damascus, dates to about 20 BC. And it just speaks about that trip uh, into Damascus en route. And we carry on verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, i.e. Eliezer is not going to be your heir, the one who's going to inherit everything you have. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And this wonderful verse, verse 6, speaking of Abraham, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. What a lovely statement. You see, I think it's quite interesting. We look at this faith of Abraham, which certainly in the New Testament is mentioned a number of times in Hebrews 11, a key point. But, you know, we don't need faith to believe in God. Do you know that? You, you know, a lot of people think that this is all just a faith thing. You don't need faith to believe in God. You just need a brain. That's sufficient. Because there is overwhelming evidence in creation and in the world, historically, archaeologically, mathematically, scientifically, whichever way you go, there is overwhelming evidence that God really is God. That God has created this world. We're not here through time and chance. We're not here as a result of some cosmic accident. Even a child knows the things will produce after their own kind, exactly as the Bible says. Things do not produce things other than themselves. Darwin's whole hypothesis is just flawed right from the start. You don't need faith to believe in God, but you do need faith to believe God. That's the challenge. That's why we need faith. Yeah, the book of Romans, chapter 1, tells us that there's abundant evidence being seen by the things that are made. Romans 12 verse 3 says that, that God has given to all men a measure of faith. And the reason we need the faith is to believe God. Because God makes all sorts of statements, gives us all sorts of promises. And this is the promise that he's giving to Abraham. And the challenge for Abraham, would he believe it? And as we've just seen, Abraham chooses to believe by faith that God will fulfill what he's promised. And God always does. God gives us his promises. And this is a great lesson for us because we see how faithful God has been in fulfilling this promise to Abraham. And we can therefore make that justified conclusion that God is going to be just as faithful in every way he's dealing in our own lives. This is given as a, an eternal example of faith. And it's also interesting because it's the first mention, in a sense, of God's plan of redemption. There's been hints at it all the way through, but now we come to this point in this chapter that God really 
starts to unravel a bit more of his plan, of what he's going to do. And it's really the promise that we saw back in Genesis 3.15. It now takes on substance, as it were. We've talked already a little bit about the timing of why now and why Abraham and so on. In Romans 4, verses 1 to 3, we read this. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before God. For what says the scripture? Again, quoting that verse we just looked at. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham didn't do anything to get God's favor. God had called Abraham. God had made the promise to Abraham, and God said he was going to fulfill it. And Abraham simply says, okay, God, I trust you. That's what it is. That's all faith is. Galatians, we read, He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he yet by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and here we go again, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. And yet again we have it in James. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see, we we often strive and so many religions present this path to God where you have to do things. It's about what you do. You might have to go out and knock on people's doors or you might have to do certain rituals or visit certain places. No. God just says we just need to believe him. To take his promises seriously. Of course, the, the most incredible of all the promises God has given us is that promise of salvation through faith in Jesus. We're all guilty before God. God is a just God. God can't just turn away and ignore sin. Sin has to be punished. And Jesus said, I will take your punishment so that you can go free. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for us. And again, like Abraham, all we have to do is say, Lord, I believe it. I accept it. Thank you. We carry on, verse 7. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Again, Ur of the Chaldees, some really quite an impressive civilization as it was. They even found electric motors that they'd made in Ur of the Chaldees. And they worshipped all sorts of gods. Abraham gets up and leaves that place his family and all those with him, they just get up and go because the one true God had called them. That's what God would have of all of us, that we, we get up and leave all the, the idols, all the false gods of this world, all the things that we can invest our time and efforts and energies into and go after the one true God. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Abraham's just asking the question now. And he said unto him, take me a heifer of three years old. A she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another. But the birds he divided not. Okay, so Abraham's getting these animals and this was the way that these covenants were cut. And that's the, the, the way that they expressed it. Because literally they would take these animals and they would cut them in half. We, we look in Jeremiah, we see an interesting 
example of this in for Jeremiah. I'm just going to pick up Jeremiah 34, verse 17. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ye have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, says the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. It's incredible prophecy being given at this point, somewhere round about just after or just after 600 BC, these prophecies being given, or certainly in the lead up to that kind of period of history. And of course, Israel have been removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And it goes on, we read verse 18, And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of, my, of the covenant, which they have made before me. Now notice this, speaking of the covenant, okay? Twice it speaks of covenant, which they have made before me, when they cut the calf in two, and pass between the parts thereof. And that's literally what they would do. They would, almost in like a figure of eight, they'd have these two pieces and they'd pass between the parts. And that's how they would make this covenant. The idea was you're coming between that which was once one, and that's how solid and sure your covenant was to be. It wasn't something that could be broken. So back into Genesis 15 verse 11. And when the fowls came down upon the carcass, Abraham drove them away. Another example of birds being seen as something not good, reference Matthew 13, if you want to further study there. Verse 12, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. So Abraham's done nothing apart from trying to wave the birds away, and now he starts to feel really tired. The Lord allows him just to nod off. And we read, And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. Now, we recognize, of course, that the last part of that is speaking of that time in Egypt. God did judge them, the Egyptians, because of their harsh treatment towards Israel. And Israel did leave Egypt with great substance. But it's really important to note that this period of time that's being referenced here wasn't all spent in Egypt. It's something a lot of people miss. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all strangers in a land that was not theirs. It also includes the time they spend in Canaan before we get to the time of Jacob and Joseph and going down to the Egypt. You actually find, and we'll look at this in detail some other time, they spend 215 years, Abraham's descendants, in the land of Canaan. They then go down to Egypt for a further 215 years, after which they're then delivered through Moses and so on. But they don't spend all of this period of time down in Egypt. This 400 years that's referenced here wasn't all spent in Egypt. And you can just simply do some simple maths with the chronologies and so on to see that that's clearly the case. But we'll maybe do a more detailed study some other time. just want to highlight that. But Abraham's vision here, so he sees that his seed are going to be strangers in a foreign land. They should be servants. They should be afflicted. Of course, that happened to Isaac, happened to Jacob, happened to Jacob's sons in the land, and have ultimately to those down in Egypt, or when they were down in Egypt, specifically to Joseph and then to Joseph's offspring. That 430 years, we'll again talk about that a little bit more because in Exodus 12 it speaks about 430 years 
And there's just a 30-year tag on at the beginning of this period of time. And I'll explain why that occurs uh, in the next few chapters. You'll see why. And again, God will judge the nation that will afflict them. We saw that. And they'll leave Egypt with great wealth and return to the land of Canaan that God had promised. God is going to send them out of this land for a very specific reason that, again, we'll look at in coming weeks. Verse 15, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, it's an interesting expression here. What, what does this mean, the iniquity of the Amorites? Well, is it saying that the Amorites need to do a bit more sinning and then when they've sinned enough? No, I don't think so. Is God giving them time to repent? Well, there's a possibility of that. But I think we're looking more specifically that the end of something was in sight. And if you cast your mind back to what we've already seen in Genesis 6, we saw the influx of the Nephilim which led to the flood and we're told that that which occurred in Genesis 6 happened afterward. And I think that the reason God allows Abraham's descendants and in this vision that Abraham's seeing to leave the land is so that we come to an end of that problem with the Nephilim. That when Israel come back into the land, they're able to come back in and to conquer the land. And that's exactly what we see as we go on through Scripture. Verse 17, And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and as it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Now this is God himself doing that, passing between the pieces. Abraham's asleep. In the same day that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. This is really important. Pay, pay attention to this. Because God is making the covenant. Abraham is simply sitting there as a kind of bystander in a sense. He's asleep. God says, I'm making this covenant with you. Okay, this is the God that cannot lie. And he says, Unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. That's the river that's in what today we know as Iraq. This land, the whole of that land, is going to be given to Israel. And we're told that the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaims, we've talked about them already, this giant tribe, these races, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites, all of those the Lord is going to give this land to Abraham. So just to make this really clear, God makes this declaration without Abraham's participation. Now, we've seen already that covenant. We looked at that scripture from Jeremiah. And God alone passes through the pieces of these animals. Again, the, the word barath that's used in the, the Hebrew here it just means to cut a covenant. And literally, what you're getting is this kind of, again, as I say, like a figure of eight, you pass between the two pieces. This covenant being established by God himself. And the terms of the covenant, covenant are very simple here. It's declared eternal and unconditional. That means Abraham can't do something to forfeit it because it's God that is making this covenant with Abraham. It's reconfirmed by an oath we'll see in Genesis 22. It's confirmed to Isaac and then later to Jacob despite their disobedience. And the New Testament also declares it immutable. Now, the really interesting thing is, as we start to look at some of the details here, that the boundaries that God is setting for Israel are really unmistakable. It's from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And if we look at that on a map, that's the Middle East as we know it today. 
This is the river Euphrates runs down from Turkey all the way down past uh, Babylon as it is, just to the side of Baghdad. That's the river of Egypt, as most commentators and scholars believe, the, the Wadi El Arish uh, in Egypt, partway into the Sinai Peninsula, as it's known today. So the implication is the whole of that land. We're not given specifically the northern or southern borders, but seemingly that kind of area is the area that God says to Abraham will be given to him and is to his, to his descendants. Now, as we've seen already, Abraham has promised this land, but that the full extent of that land has never been Israel's. You know, for a, a brief period during the, the reign of David and Solomon, Israel did hold the land from the Euphrates to the Gaza Strip or from Dan at the top to Beersheba in the south. But, you know, God has never gone back on this promise. And this promise still awaits fulfillment. You see, what we're going to find is Abraham is going to die in the land. His son Isaac is going to also die in this land. Jacob will die in Egypt. And then when the 400 years are complete, Moses will lead Israel out of Egypt and back into, after that time of wandering, the land with Joshua leading the people in. Again, this is God's land. It's not the United Nations. It's not any other political group or party or any other nations. This is God's land and he'd given it to Israel. Now, we look at it. During the time of Joshua, they had just that small area that you can see there. And that was the inheritance that they gained having gone back into the land. Eventually, when they, uh, that's just kind of the blow up of that area. This is the the conquest that we read about through the book of Joshua. There were still parts of that land, nevertheless, that Joshua didn't conquer. Interestingly, places like the West Bank and Gaza, places that have remained a problem to Israel up to this day. Under King David, they ended up with a, a slightly greater territory, spreading down to that river in Egypt, but certainly not across to the Euphrates. And then we get to the time of the captivity, around about again 600 BC. The northern kingdom had been taken captive into Assyria and just a little bit left in the south. And of course then the, the mighty Babylonian army comes in and takes over the whole of this region. And Israel becomes subject to Babylon for this long period of time. Now, of course, Persia come in and we see all of this laid out in detail for us in this incredible dream that we have in recorded in Daniel chapter 2, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreams. If you remember, he dreams a dream, he can't quite remember it. He asks for the wise men and the um, Chaldeans, everyone to interpret the dream. And Daniel steps forward and says, well, God can answer dreams. And of course, the king goes, well, I can't remember what the dream was, which makes it much harder. But Daniel says, don't worry, because God knows that as well. And then Daniel just tells the king what the dream was. He says, you, O king, are the head of gold. After you, there's going to come another empire, which is represented by the chest and arms of silver, followed by another empire, which will be the belly and thigh size of brass, followed by this incredibly powerful and strange empire, divided into to two legs, iron, representing, of course, Rome. And in the latter days of those kings, in the days that we're living, you end up with the ten toes, iron and clay. Don't quite mix that well together. And there's so much we could talk about, about the days we live and how applicable this is. I mean, Daniel sees all of this hundreds of years before these t- things take place. 
I mean, Daniel, somewhere around about 600, it was 606 BC that Daniel's carried off as about a 14-year-old boy to Babylon. And almost certainly within the first couple of years, he's put into this school of, the, of King Nebuchadnezzar to train him to be an advisor. And as Daniel interprets these things, Greece is still another 200 years away. Rome, best part of three, sorry, best part of 500 years away. And of course, we're looking about two and a half thousand years into the days in which we live. And yet Daniel detailed all of these things. Critics hate this because as we look at history, we find it's all been fulfilled exactly to the letter. Except, of course, the things that are yet to come. And after Babylon, we get the Persian Empire. Now, of course, Cyrus, the Persian king, was the one that allowed Israel to go home and go back to their land. And you can go to the British Museum, as I on a number of occasions you can see there the steel of Cyrus. It's this little cylinder. It's actually much smaller than you think it is. Um, and on there, Cyrus has kind of bragged about how great he was, how he conquered all these cities, but how he'd let the inhabitants return to their own lands. Well, of course, Persia conquered Babylon without a struggle, without a fight, on the night that Balthazar, uh, Balthazar sorry, is having his feast. But then Persia have their time. Of course, that then gives way to the Greek Empire. All of this time, Israel don't have that land that was promised to Abraham. That's where we're going with this. And the Greek Empire, incredible. Alexander the Great, what an incredible military genius he was. Conquering so much of the, the known world in such a short space of time. And the incredible thing about Alexander and his conquests were that he brought effectively one language to this entire region. Now that's really fascinating because you see God making a way for the gospel. Because the Old Testament, of course, we know is in Hebrew. The New Testament would be in Greek. In a language that everybody by that time would be speaking. And of course that empire gives way to the Roman Empire. Now Israel, just that small little area there, smaller than Wales. But all of that then gets taken over by the Roman Empire. Of course, we have the two branches of the, the Roman Empire, the, the Western Leg and the Eastern Leg, and so on. This is a very quick tour through history. But after the Roman Empire effectively just fades away, we get to the time of the Byzantine Empire. Now, the capital at that point moved from Rome to Constantinople or Istanbul, around about 330 AD. And that kind of takes us all the way around to about 1453. And of course we then see, during this period of time, the rise of Islam. Muhammad had kind of merged together the existing worship of the moon god, Al-Ilah was, was the name, known then as Allah. By force they took so much of that area of Arabia and the Mediterranean world, Syria fell in 634, Jerusalem 637, of course the Dome of the Rock was built there and so on, Egypt 638, Persia 640, Africa 689, Spain in 711. In, you see that red dot up in France in 732 AD. You may remember from history, Charles Martel stopped the Muslims at Tours or near Potier in France and stopped them advancing any further. But that gives rise to this empire under the control of uh, those that would follow Muhammad. That leads on to, the, of course, the Ottoman Empire, uh, really drawn out from the, the Turks. 
And that goes all the way up to, and that embraces the period of time of the Crusades and everything else. And of course the Crusades were an elevated attempt to try and deliver Jerusalem, to deliver the Holy Land from the oppression of the the Ottoman Empire, from the Turks, from the um, Muslims that had held Jerusalem up to that point. But in 1918, we get to this interesting situation, the Sykes-Pickett Agreement. This agreement to separate this land up. And then we get to the the British and the the French mandate in 1918. Uh, The year before this, we have this note from Balfour to Lord Rothschilds, who was again one of Britain's most prominent Jews at the time, stating that His Majesty's government wished to view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. But bear in mind, from this point, from about 132-135 AD, Israel had been without their own land for the whole of this time. And yet God had made a promise to Abraham way back that they'd have this land. Well, with this declaration, Israel were promised all of that area you can see the shade area which would include jordan and all that that's the area that they were originally promised and it's getting close to the area that god has said to abraham that they would have but we then get to the british partition and you can see what happens israel are given a much smaller portion of land than they've been promised jordan are given that piece of land and you, you start to see how all these things go on from there in 1948 of course, the incredible situation that Israel become a nation again, in a day, just as they've been prophesied. Uh, there's so much interesting history and facts. You know, there were never a Palestinian people. That's all been a media invention. The, the Palestinian orchestra was a Jewish orchestra. The Palestinian Post was a Jewish newspaper. In fact, the name Palestine actually comes from Emperor Hadrian, who wanted to, after trying to plow Jerusalem and get rid of all the Jews in about 135 AD, he renamed the land Palestina after the Philistines who'd been Israel's enemies. And it was purposely as a, done as an insult to Israel. But there never had been any indigenous people to this land other than, than Israel, following the time of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. But of course we're led to believe that, you know, in 1948, Israel, as this nation is born, gave all the, the people that were currently in the area the opportunity of staying. But the Arab nations told them all to leave, and when they left, they wouldn't let them return. And they created this refugee problem that we have today. Incredibly, we had about 450,000, 500,000 refugees that left Israel. Israel then absorbed about 900,000 Jews that were forced out of all of the Arab countries. This is a matter of history. You can Google it. You can see these, these things. If you want a, a good book on the subject, Dave Hunt's Judgment Day details it very, very well indeed. We then get to this kind of war of independence at this point in time. Interestingly enough, the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, was formed in 1964, three years before they lost what is referred to as the occupied territories. Let me ask you, what were they trying to liberate three years before they lost anything to liberate? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? 1978, we get to what was referred to as the Camp David partition. This will be in the, the slides. You can look at these maps and things later 
1993, you get to the Oslo Accords, which are these kind of set of agreements between the government of Israel and the PLO. Uh, it was signed in Washington in 1993. Um, and the idea was to create a Palestinian authority uh, with self-governance in parts of the West Bank and Gaza. You see, Israel are always the ones that seem to concede. We get to 2003 and the, the, the roadmap, which was really George W. Bush's, I say his idea, is actually uh, Donald Bloom, his foreign service officer, that came up with this outline. And, of course, Bush was the, the one president at the time that pushed it forward. And, again, the, the idea of an independent Palestinian state living side by side with Israel in peace, that was, of course, the, the plan in uh, 14th of April 2004. Ariel Sharon wrote a letter to Bush he confirmed his commitment to the, the roadmap um, and started to agree, announced this kind of unilateral disengagement plan where Israel would withdraw from Gaza. I mean, we've seen the problems that Israel have faced, constantly bombarded with missiles and shells, randomly, on any target. They don't care where they hit. Of course, 2006, Hamas become elected in the Palestinian elections. I've got a terrorist organization, an incredible position of power now. And even recently, our uh, head of the, the Anglican Church uh, out there speaking and saying, well, actually, no, Hamas really should be included in, in conversations and so on. It's very, very interesting. Just a, a comment, actually, because Welby's visit uh, back in, in May, uh, he was speaking to the mayor of Bethlehem, uh, a man by the name of William Shayer, and he said, William Shayer said that the Balfour Declaration, in which the British government supported the establishment of Palestine, uh, of, of a national home for the Jewish people, uh, was one of the darkest acts of colonialism ever seen. An incredible statement. You see, the, the Palestinians have actually asked for an apology that, that Israel would do this. Well, who were the Palestinians before that point? Very interesting. Just to throw something out because I think this is fascinating too of course we know Israel were by the world standards made a nation again in 1948 but Saudi were back in 1913 Lebanon 1920 Iraq 1932 Syria 1941 Jordan 1946 and Kuwait as late as 1961 nobody complains about their land nobody says that they shouldn't have the land that they have but everybody complains about the land that Israel have, even though the land given to Israel was far less than had been promised. Just a couple of other interesting things. Of 865 Security Council resolutions that have been passed before 1990, 526 out of 865 were directed against tiny little Israel. Of 960 General Assembly resolutions voted on before 1990, 62% or 429, again, were directed against Israel. During five wars against Israel, no UN resolutions have ever been made against the perpetrators of those wars, the Arab nations. It's amazing. In November 2003, Israel introduced its first resolution since 1976, and they requested that Arab terrorists not target Israeli women and children. I think you'd agree that's a pretty fair request. Believe it or not, the UN rejected it. But then the UN adopted a resolution that demanded protection of Palestinian children from Israel. Now, of course, that's not a problem. But how can they reject Israel's 
request. You know, of course, this is all that the Bible tells us. Zechariah 12, we read there, verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. You see, we're told that Jerusalem is going to become a cup of trembling for the nations. All those that are around about. It will be a burdensome stone for all peoples. Well, that it is today, without any question. You know, third of all, UN resolutions. Of all UN resolutions have to do with Israel. That's one one thousandth of the world's population. And yet, incredibly, when you look at things like Nobel Prizes, do you know Israel, this small, tiny little nation have amassed 20% of all Nobel Prizes. Amazing. You see, what God promised Abraham truly has come to pass. They have been blessed. And they have blessed the world through their inventions and everything else. Another interesting scripture to, to highlight here, Numbers 23, this is the prophecy of Balaam. Remember, Balak hires him to come and curse Israel, and he says, I can't curse them. He says, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord has not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. You will not find Israel on Arab maps. They don't reckon them among the nations. More than that, I'm reading to you from Dave Hunt. He says, Israel has been a member of the United Nations for more than 50 years. She is not allowed to take a two-year term as one of the ten rotating nations, joining the five permanent ones on the UN Security Council. Of the 191 current members, 190, including the worst terrorist nations, are allowed to take their turns on the Security Council, but not Israel. Nor is Israel, as already noted, allowed to take a rotating turn on the 53-member UN Commission on Human Rights. All of the other 190 UN member nations are allowed to do so. These have included Libya, Cuba, Zimbabwe, and other egregious violators of human rights. Incredibly, Sudan, where more than two million blacks in the south have been slaughtered by Muslims, has been voted in for a third consecutive term. But Israel, the only democracy in the Middle East, is excluded, as the Bible foretold. There's only one explanation to this, and that is that God has chosen Israel, that God has used them and will continue to use them for his purposes, and the devil hates it. And we'll do all that he can. We started this morning talking about how the, the devil wants to disrupt everything. But, you know, God's promise to Israel, as given way back, as we've seen in Genesis chapter 12, reiterated or made a covenant in Genesis 15, as we've seen this morning, that promise still stands. And ultimately, during the millennial kingdom, Israel will be given all of this land. And just think about this for a second, because Israel's right to the land, that's often the question. But they have a historical right. It was the land of their fathers. They have an archaeological right, in that sense, because Jews have had a presence there for over 3,000 years. There's a practical value, because since Israel has returned to the land, the desert, as it was, has now become a, a fruitful place. Mark Twain had commented, why would anybody want to live here? As he wandered through the land prior to Israel returning. Of course, Israel have returned to the land, and now if you go to Israel, it is just wonderful. Beautiful flowers and trees. They're one of the greatest fruit producers in the world and fruit exporters. From a humanitarian point of view, 
the Jews do need a homeland. Where else are we going to put these, this group of people? From a point of view of balance, they're the only democracy in the Middle East. You know, from a religious perspective, in the Bible, Israel is mentioned 2,565 times. Jerusalem, 811 times. I mean, clearly they have a claim on this land from a, a biblical perspective. They have a divine right because the God of heaven has said so as well. So I'll read you in closing just a couple of quotes. A man by the name of Stephen Hayes wrote a book called Reluctant Witnesses. said this, The survival of the Jewish people is the greatest proof of the existence of Almighty God. If there were no God in heaven, there would not be one Jewish person on the earth. It's amazing that Israel have survived all the persecutions, all the, the attacks upon them as a nation, and yet they've remained independent, they've remained separate. Queen Victoria once posed this question to her Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, and she said, can you give me one verse from the Bible that proves there is a God? And he thought for a moment and responded and said, I can give you the answer in just one word. Well, what is it? She wanted to know. And the Israeli replied, the Jew, your majesty. Stephen Haynes again says, an, an eminent man once said, the universal dispersion of the Jews throughout the world, their unexampled sufferings and their marvelous preservation would be enough to establish the truth of scriptures if all other evidence was cast into the sea. Remember, the name of David Torrance said this. He said, The very existence of the Jews in history, together with all that has happened to them in their long, turbulent, turbulent history, is proof that there is a God present and active through his Holy Spirit in history by all normal laws of geography, history, and, ethno and ethnography. They ought, as a distinct race, to have disappeared long ago. And despite wars, persecutions, and repeated attempts to obliterate them, they have kept their peculiar identity. They have remained a people apart from other nations of the world, a testimony to the preserving hand of God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi 3 verse 6. Then Dave Hunt said this, If the Bible is in error concerning Israel, its major subject... Then all of the synagogues and Christian churches that claim to base their beliefs upon those scriptures ought to admit the fact and shut their doors. If, however, the Bible is true, then the nations of the world ought to govern their conduct accordingly. For if they do not, the consequences will be disastrous. Talk more about some of those consequences in future sessions. But Jeremiah, we read this. Thus says the Lord, which gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. God says... If the sun and moon are still there, if the sun is still shining, the moon still comes out at night, then God has not given up on his promises to Israel. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, if the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. And of course, it's rhetorical because that can't be done. Only God knows those things. And God has said that he will not cast off Israel. Yes, Israel have made mistakes. Yes, Israel have done things that... Even as Christians, we would not necessarily approve of. But we cannot deny the fact that the Bible makes it absolutely clear that they are God's chosen people. Through the Jews, we were given God's word. Through the Jews, most importantly, the Messiah came into this world. The laws that we have largely have come down through Israel. Next week, we're going to carry on looking more about the life of Abraham. 
but really the point of this session was just to underline the fact that God keeps his promises. And if God has kept his promises to Israel, well then God will keep his promise to you that he will never leave you or forsake you. That you can be absolutely assured of your eternal salvation if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity this morning to look at these things. Father, we thank you that your word is true. Father, we thank you that we can verify it in so many ways. But Lord, more importantly, that the things that we can comprehend and understand intellectually, we thank you that you have made promises which you have laid before us that we have the choice of taking by faith. And Lord, these promises, these exceedingly great and precious promises that you've given us, you have done so because of the incredible love that you have for each one of us. For your word says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, regardless of our past, regardless of whatever's happened in our life, whosoever shall believe in him, believe in Jesus Christ, shall not perish, but have eternal life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your promises. We thank you that we can believe you as well as believe in you. Lord, be with us through this week ahead, we pray. Keep us close to you. Keep us growing in knowledge and grace, we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.